You are listening to Mr. Apex Podcast. We love MotoGP. Hello and welcome to Mr. Apex MotoGP Podcast. This is a show put together by MotoGP fans pretending to be experts. We aim to have a race review show ready for your Tuesday morning commute. We may not be bike races, but we love it. I am your host, Kyle Power, and today I am joined in my virtual shed by two fellow MotoGP enthusiasts. All the way from Holland, we have the Dutch journalist supremo, Jules Seegers. How's it going, Jules? Hi, Kyle. Uh, Everything fine here. Saying hello to you guys from the country that was able to welcome its first Grand Prix winner since 1990 this weekend. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. You must be very, very happy. Yeah, it was great, great news for the Dutch uh, motorsport fans. Uh, Colin Feyer is, uh, we, who we're talking about, 17-year-old 17 rookie in the Moto3 uh, category and his first win uh, in, his, in his rookie season. So that's, uh, that's pretty big. Yep, that's good. Definitely worth a mention. And making it a truly international panel all the way from Austin is Adam Rosales. How's it going, Adam? Going good. I am loving the spicy season and I'm hoping for another spicy finish. Excellent. I think we all are. Brilliant. So uh, moving on from the previous show and the last round, we'll do a quick mini championship status recap. So Pekka Bagnaia has a 13-point lead over Jorge Martin, but all of the momentum after the last round is with Jorge Martin, closing that gap down into the Malaysian Grand Prix, which is this, which is the start of the final triple header of the Malaysian Grand Prix, Qatar, and finishing off in Valencia. So we are now on round 18, And before any of the track action started this weekend, there's a few little tidbits of notable news. And that is after his great victory in Buriam last time, Martin actually got his tyre pressure warning. Now, I'm really sorry, we have to mention tyre pressures. This is the steaming turd in the MotoGP hamper at the moment. We can't avoid really talking about it, but we're sure that all of you listeners who've been watching the broadcast over the weekend are probably sick and tired of hearing about it. So we will try to keep it to... A minimum. So basically, Jorge Martin has his tire pressure warning, and Bagnaia didn't get one. So basically, Bagnaia has his Joker card he can play. So it's not really level footing. Martin's team might have to be a bit more cautious and sacrifice a bit of performance to try to be careful now and not get another warning. Because if he does, he gets a three-second penalty. So that's quite that's quite pertinent. Uh, Ducati come public and basically say that Bastianini's ride in the works team could be under threat from Martin if Martin wins the championship. A bit more on that later because I think that's quite a clever move from them. And the rumour which is hot around the paddock and from all the sources now are saying it's pretty much, it's pretty much a done deal is Luca Marini leaving his brother's VR46 team to go to Repsol Honda. Jules, make it make sense. It is a pretty interesting move if it if it actually gonna uh, be this way. For a couple of weeks, I think in during the Thailand uh, Grand Prix weekend, a lot of people uh, thought it was gonna be Di Gian Antonio who was gonna take that seat. But this weekend, it all of a sudden uh, became a bit apparent that it could actually become Marini. And the only reason I can think of that would attract Marini to join Repsol Honda is that he's gonna get a factory pay he could potentially spearhead a development of a new honda and which is potentially still one of the the biggest teams and he already once said that it's a dream of his to 
become a factory team rider and driving a Ducati right now, it's not likely that he'll get a factory seat for that brand in the near future. Okay, that makes sense. So Adam, do you think he's wanting to spearhead the revival of Honda or is he just seeing sweet, sweet dollar signs? I think that there's multiple aspects to it. Um, he could have some potential inside info on the path the VR46 team is going. And we don't, there's been some speculation that they might be switching to Yamaha in a couple of years. And so he might be leery of that. The other aspect is that, of course, he wants a factory ride. Everybody wants a factory ride. And this is his opportunity that could be once in a lifetime to get that happening. Also, he it might be his his way out of the, the clubhouse of the VR46 camp. And so he's taking his opportunity, if, if this is true, uh, it could be his only opportunity ever to kind of jump out of the shadow of, you know, the VR46 camp. That's quite interesting you say that. So the VR, when you say the VR46 camp, you're talking about Bezeki, Bagnaya. Who else is in there? Is it Digi's in there? Who else um, is in there? I don't think Digi's in there. Um, you got Morbidelli as well. Um, you know, it, it, it's the small group of Italians that all kind of were part of the training camp the, at Rossi's Ranch. Um, so they, 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 they're kind of a close knit group. And I mean, it, they're, and Ina Bassanini is not part of it. Um, I don't think he ever was. Um, but he's one of the few Italians that wasn't part of it. And maybe he's talked to him. Maybe he's gotten some ideas on potential paths for the future, but the money that Honda I'm sure is offering him is I'm sure it's very tempting. Yeah. So Jules, cause it seems a bit odd that essentially Valentino Rossi's brother, uh, and we all know that Rossi's relationship with Marquez is not very good, is going to take Marquez's seat at Repsol Honda. It just does seems like a very unlikely thing to me. Does it make sense for you? I mean, after what Adam said, it, it, it makes a little bit more sense, but I'm still a bit miffed. I think what could drive Marini in this, in this situation is that he wants to show everyone, look, I'm not only little Rossi's ha or Rossi's little half brother. I am a man of my own. I'm a writer of my own and I can make my own decisions. And if you'd want to illustrate that, going to what is uh, arguably Mark Marquez's team or was um, going to that team is kind of a statement. And so it might always be a bit a bit difficult to dissect the, the the family ties and whatever happens there, but I I can see this as a as a message like I'm I'm a man of my own. Plus, if he signs the two year deal that he that he's rumored to, he'd be a free man for uh, the 2026 regulation changes. So let's say he does quite a quite a good job coming two seasons, he might have uh, the maybe even the bigger teams to to choose from. And if he does a, a really good job and manages to develop that Honda into what it once was, he'd be in, in, in a really hot seat. All I can say is I wish him all the best and I hope he has a good surgeon lined up if he's going to be spending a couple of years on that Honda. So then, going this weekend and the practice or qualifying overview, Adam, it's looking like there's, there's a couple of little notable events here. We've got a couple of wild cards in... Bautista and Ike Laquona, both of them returning to the championship. Uh, Martin not looking quite as dominant, but the main sort of attention grab looked like some shenanigans going on in qualifying. Yeah, so there wasn't too many events in uh, practice. And so I think that the main highlight of the weekend and what grabbed a lot of the headlines was 
Uh, Mark Marquez kind of doing his typical shadow following. He picked his rider in Q1, and it turned out to be Franco Morbidelli, which is probably not the best considering his position. <laughs> and he's a uh, very much chill of a dude attitude. Uh, he he, uh, he took nothing of it, and he ended up... he. I think that might have been the mo- the most successful way uh, to to ditch him. He went into the final turn with a minute left in Q1 and just slammed the brakes way too early while Mark was following him, which they're at six gear flat out. And he braked probably about 100 meters earlier than Marquez expected. And he did this in a safe way, pulling all the way to the right, um, almost on the curbs. And it made Mark completely blow his line into the final turn, and he had to start a lap. And he had no way of of recovering that and trying to follow him. And it also let Morbidelli uh, continue on with his final lap. Um, And uh, yeah, it was just, it it was a bit too much for for my taste. Okay, so that's that's quite a clever play there for Morbidelli. And I love this hand signals he was giving you. He was giving Mark like, holding out you've heard of racecraft before i call this race crufts it was like a dog show he was like he'll stay there or go away he was just taking the mickey out of marquez really and that was a genius play to make him go past at the final corner but in marquez's defense that honda is quite bad surely he needs a toe to get himself out q1 so is surely that slightly mitigating factor would you say well i mean yes he does because i mean if anybody can drag that bike it's him but he's crashed so many times this year that he doesn't want to get hurt anymore and so he's taken the the likes of following again, but he was doing this back when he had the best bike and winning the championship. It, it's nothing new. He's been doing this for a long time. And it was almost like when he, when Fabio Quattuaro was on the Petronas Yamaha, um, he did the same thing. And at the same track, when was, I think it was 2019. And uh, we, you know, it, it's something that he's been doing for a long time and it influences a lot of the, Moto three riders who are constantly penalized for doing this, and I don't understand how it's allowed in Moto GP, but not in the lower classes. Who, I mean, they're, they're going to idolize the guy who's winning the championships, and they're going to replicate his riding. And I don't think it sets a good precedent for Mark Marquez to not get any kind of penalty or any kind of reprimands for this style of qualifying, um, basically impeding. Because it was the same in Thailand, he tried to do the same. He tried to follow Jack Miller, and there was one lap left. Going into turn one, they were both starting their last lap, and he just outbreaks him. Knows that he can't um, get a faster lap than Jack Miller, but he impeded his qualifying to guarantee Jack Miller wouldn't get a faster lap than him. And so it just goes back to what you just said about racecraft. Marquez knows he can get away with this stuff. And so, of course, he's going to use every tool at his disposal to do this. And it's just it as the type of influence he has on the lower classes and those guys getting punished is what I want some consistency in rules. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. You know, so if you need to set and I know we've heard this in Formula One recently, but the role model term can be wheeled out here. So, um, so Jules in qualifying, that was that was quite a lot of the headline in qualifying, but. But Jules, it looked like it was a decent qualifying for Peko. Yeah, Peko must have been really confident after qualifying. He secured his first pole since Barcelona, and he actually said that he hadn't felt this good on the bike since then. So that's that was a pretty big big statement. Uh, and actually, apart from that, not only securing that that pole after quite a while, it was also a 
mental victory over his rival Jorge Martin, who actually crashed during qualifying uh, in an attempt on this uh, on this final hot lap. So that was that was a pretty interesting outcome after uh, after that qualifying um, about the. Well, the, the the mental battle between uh, the, the the psychological battle between those two, absolutely. So that set up a good front row for for our sprint race. Then, so there was uh, Peko and Paul, Jorge Martini second, and Bastianini in third. So we'll move on to our sprint review. We'll move in now to the sprint review and the sprint race. I'm. I'm not going to lie, I've had to watch it about three times and I still can't get many things to stick into my head about it for some reason. Um, but so all the riders' tyres, unlike the last round, tyres aren't so much of a factor. Well, the tyre compound itself isn't too much of a factor. I believe it was medium-medium tyre choice for both the Sprint and the MotoGP. So tyre sort of conservation isn't really going to come into it. So it starts off and the opening laps were were frantic, Jules. Like it's a really good battle. Like and Bastianini on a good front row start, looks like he drops down the pack a bit. He he had he, he did a great job ending up in the front row after qualifying, and it was a sign of of the pace he would finally show again this this weekend. Uh, fortunately for him, he dro- he dropped um, a couple of places, and it looked like it was going to be a battle between Alex Marquez and Jorge Martin. Um, so it was a bit of a shame because everybody was kind of excited to have Bastianini back up there. And um, but it wasn't his time yet. He recovered pretty well, and um, in uh, in the at the end of the race, it seemed like he was holding back to uh, to hand uh, Banyaya third third spot, of course, because uh, he's in the title fight. And uh, later on, he would even uh, he would even uh, say to the press that he was fine with helping Banyaya out there. And um, he his his big goal was to get a podium on Sunday, but we'll get to that later, of course. Yeah, so that's interesting. So after the opening salvos, it looks like Bagnai gets away at the front, and it looks like it's absolutely perfect for him. It's exactly what he wants to lead from the front and get away and keep that front tire cool. But we've got a very feisty Alex Alex Marquez in the mix, who's really really quick. Bastianini is quick, and of course Jorge Martin, who's desperate to get after Bagnaia. So so, so Adam, once um, once Alex Marquez manages to get into second place and hunt down Bagnar, his pace looks scintillating. Did you think Bagnar stood a chance of holding on to the lead? I think Bagnar was probably being a bit conservative. Uh, he's got kind of two distinct styles of racing, and if he knows that he can just lose the front kind of randomly, and it, you you know it happens. And so he's got a style where he's, I guess, more defensive and a little bit more smart just to make sure he doesn't have any major moment situations. And he just likes to be consistent and want to score the points. He's won a championship and he knows what he's doing, what he needs to do in order to just get points and maintain some kind of a lead. Because it doesn't matter how many points you have as long as you have a lead. With this many races left, it just matters in who you finish in front of, which for... Bagnaya, he just wants to finish ahead of Martin. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point because um, Martin sort of gets gets past. Well, Alex Marquez gets past him, and then Martin gets past him. Bagnaya doesn't seem to fight too too hard, and then Bastianini's making a bit of a resurgence at this point, sort of Jules, and he's coming up behind Bagnaya. And 
I'm thinking the same thing as everything's thinking. Surely he's getting some sort of communication on his dashboard or the team has told him before that you are not to finish ahead of Bagnaia. Do you think that was the case? Definitely think so, Carl. Um, as I said, Bastianini, he already had in his mind, I'd rather go for a great result on Sunday and settle for, for the team spirit on uh, on the Saturday. Um, it was clear that he was was backing off while you could, like like Adam said, you could see um, Banyaya struggle with his front tire at, at, at a couple of occasions. And it just seemed that that um, Banyaya lost it from one lap to the other while, when he was passed by both uh, um, Alex Marquez and Jorge Martin. And after that, it, it was just hanging on to to P three and and by the by the grace of uh, of Bastianini, uh, uh, yeah Bastianini, sorry, um, uh, 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 keeping cool and and uh, pushing his brake uh, a little bit uh, earlier to leave him uh, leave him in P three. Yeah, so Adam, I I I was thinking much the same as sort of Jules there. Surely he's been told or is getting some communication on his dashboard. Yeah, do you remember Lorenzo with Map Eight a few years back? This was the I felt like the exact same thing, except they were smart. It was Ducati learned a lesson not to transmit that over the communications everybody could see, and so they definitely had a kind of some kind of pre-race meeting on that exact point. And I don't think that Enea wasn't allowed to pass Bagnaya. Um, I don't think I I think that maybe if they went into turn one and he was ahead, he would be allowed to keep it. And, which we can talk about that a little bit later, but the uh, I, I I'm pretty sure it, there had to have been some kind of meeting where he was instructed not to overtake Bagnaya because if you're that close for that many laps, you're faster, uh, and it's just you could see it. Yeah, self preservation and also thinking that his ride might be at risk as well is um don't want to do anything stupid and knock your teammate off who's fighting for the championship. So basically, Alex Marquez rockets off at the front. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I thought I was kind of half expecting him to bin it at some point. He is partial to a uh, binning from strong position, um, but he didn't. His pace was electric, and his and he's absolutely torn away at the front there. So Alex Marquez comes across the line, takes the win. Um, Jorge Martin ends up getting second, leading home Bagnaya on the podium in third, who's being well chaperoned by his teammate in fourth. So the championship gap now has come down from thirteen to 11 points it's not taking too many out of it but it's all setting up nicely for a grand prix race with very fast alex marquez it looks like a fast bastianini and bagner and Morgan martin all on the pace i do think guys that in the end the the surprise um, uh, was uh, with with peco being passed in one lap by both uh, alex marquez and Jorge martin but also he he started from pole and it was his first poll since Barcelona. And he said on Friday, like, I haven't felt this good on the, bu- on the bike for, 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 for a couple of races. So he, he was really uh, feeling good and, and confident and, and to start from pole and then actually pretty, pretty much um, uh, without any defense ending up in P3. Um, and and getting gifted that by a teammate, it must have been kind of a, a, a kind of a blow to him going into the Sunday race, where he would start from pole again, of course. So that wraps up 
our mini sprint review and it's a nice time to take a break and to get to know our panel a little bit more before we do the Grand Prix review. So last week I already asked Jules what's his what's his main MotoGP standout memory so I will ask you a different question this week Jules and I was like what impresses you most about MotoGP riders versus other sports? I think it must be the feeling you get when you see these guys getting on their bikes and you just think are these bikes oversized compared to the human being that has to get on them and actually control those beasts you know every if you look at moto 3 you kind of get the feeling odd oh, it's almost like a bicycle you know the, the 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 small tires and 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 the riders seem a bit too big maybe for the ge- geometrics of of the moto 3 bike and then moto 2 seems just quite right you know like when you're you're at a stopping sign and 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 a motor rider stops next to you and think all right it looks pretty much the same looks right and then just moto gp it's it's they look like these wild beasts with all these aero packages and the, and the, and, the, and the fat tires and and they're huge and big and, and 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 so loud and pacey and you just think like how how do these guys I mean they're all pretty small you know I think uh, uh, last episode we talked about Danny Pedrosa is like one and a half meters and that's of course a bit extreme but still and they they look so tiny and they're able to control these these beasts I think that that's what what impresses me most. Next to, of course, the fact that they uh, they they don't feel sorry for themselves easily. Uh, I mean, if you we we've discussed some some injuries of some riders, but if you see with with what kind of injuries and probably unhealed yet, step on the bike still, it's uh, that's what impressed me. Indeed, and that was a good answer. And the bikes have to be that big so they can contain the rider's own spherical objects. Is my opinion is what I think. So, uh, Adam. Uh, you went on last week, so I will ask you, when I say MotoGP, what's your standout MotoGP memory, your connection to fandom? So I've been following MotoGP quite a bit since around 2006, 2007. And my first like standout memory was uh, arriving to the Indianapolis race uh, during free practice three we drove all night. It was a 16 hour drive. There was like six dudes crammed into a truck and we got there and it's just, it's raining. It's pouring. It's miserable. But we got to park, uh, uh, you know, one of our, one of the guys in our group, um, was handicapped. And so we actually were guided to some parking on the infield. So we got to drive underneath the circuit park at the infield, right on the inside of turn two. And so I get out of this truck after being stuck in it with five other dudes for about 16 hours. And the first thing I see and hear is a bike going through turn one at Indy at about 170 miles an hour in the rain. And it just blew my mind. That was my first experience of hearing a bike, you know, in person. And then, uh, you know, it's in the rain. They got their knees down. They're incredibly fast, incredibly loud. You can hear the difference between the Suzuki, the Honda, or I guess it was Suzuki at the time, but the the Honda, the Yamaha, the Ducati, uh, it was just, it was mind blowing. So that's my first standout uh, MotoGP memory is attending Indianapolis 2009. And yeah, it was great. That's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, we are a full panel of uh, MotoGP nuts and uh, hardcore fans. And so what better people to join me on a review of the Grand Prix? We'll move on to the main event now. This Grand Prix, we're not going to lie. I think everyone's seen it. 
it wasn't the best MotoGP that we've seen, in all honesty, but it had some moments. So turn one and off the start, Martin looks like he wants to go and do what he's done the last couple of Grand Prix and get the whole shot. And he's in the middle. So back the whole front row make a great start. And they're basically all three of them in a line going into turn one. And Martin's just like, wherever you break, I'm breaking later. And just breaks super late and gets in. And I thought he was going to get stopped. But then, but then Jules, he goes a little bit wide and actually ends up paying the price a little bit for it. He did indeed. He dropped back to, to P5. Uh, still in lab one, he recovered to P4. Uh, but you, I thought you could see there how desperate uh, he was to get in front of the bunch, probably to try and manage the pace and preserve his tires. But it was too ambitious, and he and he just he just paid for it. Yeah, yeah, that was um, a big move in there, and he needed to make it stick, but actually suffered as a result. Adam, like, uh, would you have gone for a similar move? I mean, uh, who doesn't like to send it into turn one? But this track is unique, and it, it's got uh, you know pretty long straight before you turn one, and then turn two folds right in, or turn one folds right into turn two, and so your line into turn one really dictates where you're going to be for turn two. So it's it, this isn't your traditional start because just the way that this track is oriented, and so you're really racing for your position in turn two. And so it, 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 it's a bit unique. And that's where I think Fabio did incredible. Um, he, it's something we haven't seen from him in a while. And I think it's kind of limited to the bike he has with the package. But uh, he did something magical for me. And he just had an incredible start. And his position going into turn two was just key. It made his Grand Prix. Yeah. I, and it's nice to be able to say that about the Yamahas because we haven't really been able to talk um, about them at all really and Morbidelli was actually in there at some points during his race he gets a mention later so uh so so Jules did you notice Quattararo getting up into turn one yeah and not only Quattararo I also I also um, noticed that Jack Miller had a, had a really good start he started P10 which like KTM's weekend wasn't impressive as it as it was in in um in Thailand, but he started P10 and he, he uh, was riding around P6 after the start. So there were a couple of guys getting that start right. And as Adam said, like if, if you get that first turn right, you also get the second one right. And Peko, like uh, like Jorge Martin, didn't really do that uh, because he lost some places as well. So where Quattararo and, and Miller had a, had a good one, uh, Peko again uh, lost his pole position spot. Yeah, so it sets up. So Bastianini takes the whole shot. We've got Alex Marquez in, in second. And now I was expecting Alex Marquez to go and hunt down Bastianini. But Bastianini's got an interesting situation here. And as we mentioned earlier, Ducati had said, you know, beginning of this weekend, that his ride is potentially at risk if Martin wins a championship. Now, I think this is a bit of a 4D high IQ chess move from Ducati here. So he's clearly got some team orders, but they've kind of done it in such a way that they put the ball into his own court by basically saying, saying, look, if Martin wins, your rider's at risk. So it is in Bassanini's best interest. He has a huge vested interest to help his teammate win the championship to preserve his own ride. So I think it's quite a clever little uh, thing that Ducati have done there, whether it was intentional or not, but that's the way it turns out. So clearly... If he can just go out and win the race, that is good. And if he notices that his teammate isn't directly behind him, 
then he doesn't really have to give the position up. So this is his best chance to go and win the race. And he had mega pace and he just gets his head down and absolutely fires it at the front. I don't think he would have given up a win. Um, I, I think he would have been, well, like I re- referenced earlier, Lorenzo with map eight ignored it and he would have just done his own thing and gone for that top spot in the podium. And I think that that might've been the only way Ducati allowed it. Whereas if he led the first lap, okay, you're allowed to win. We're not going to hold you back and you don't need to give up your position for, for Pekka. And I think that must've been part of the conversation because once he got away uh, at that start, he, he was gone. And I mean, Alex followed along, but he had just lap after lap. Uh, he didn't really have any moments and it was nice to see him back. Um, we got, you know, we got it last year. We had a flash of it at round one this year. Unfortunate situation. He got injured, but it, it's like he's back. It's good to see. And I wanted that this year. I wanted there to be an internal team rivalry between him and Pecco, which we were kind of, you know, we we missed out on due to injury. And so it, it's, yeah, it's good to see him back. And I, I think that the Martin rumors definitely uh, are part of the conversation. And maybe that's why he turned it up to 11 and just sent it into turn one. <laughs> yeah, he did really well. So you talk about sending into turn one. So Martin sending it into turn one actually drops him back behind behind Bezeki, I believe it was, into into fifth. And then so he was caught up with Bezeki. Once he got past him, he then sets about chasing after Bagnaya. And again, I was rubbing I was rubbing my hands with glee, thinking, here we go, we're gonna get the uh, bashing the bashing handlebars. And I think it was on lap five or four, there's about eighteen to go where he catches Bagnaya and then puts the move on him into what I will call the Rossi uh the Rossi kickboxing corner, which is turn fourteen, I believe. Um and then Bagnaya robustly gets past him and edges him out to the side of the track jewels. That looked like quite a quite a tough defense there. It was. And it wasn't what we saw from Banyaya in, in recent races where we like last episode we also talked about that he he seemed to be calculative calculative, uh, avoiding battles maybe or not being that fierce uh, in battles. But it, it looked like this time around he set his mind on you're not going to get in front of me again. So when um, when Jorge Martin tried that move in, in, in T15, he just waited. He waited t- until he could cut underneath um, for the for the exit. And he just drove off and, and, and kind of forced uh, Jorge Martin a bit wide. And, and, and at the, the aerial shot, it was almost like they touched each other, like, like Banyaya let it run wide a bit more than maybe was needed. And it, it, it seemed like they touched. Did, did you guys think they did? I think there might've been a tiny, tiny bit of contact, um, but it was pretty close. It was just about as close as when I think it was on the next lap, Martin into turn four has a huge lunge at Bagnar again. Bagnar gets through. It looked like Martin's got the job done, Adam, but then, Bagnaya sweeps across the front of him. Now, this was giving me Rossi Marquez 2015 vibes. Very yeah. tough move there. I, I think Peko must have used about 10% of his edge grip uh, because he just, he got on the throttle and he just, uh, yeah, it was, I'm surprised he didn't have a moment of a high side. It was just clean. Um, he just, it, yeah, he must have used 10% of his throttle and just gone for it and it stuck. And he pushed, Martin a little bit wide, but it was clean. I, I don't think they made contact at that moment. 
And then uh, the next few corners were also just really exciting to watch. And, uh, you know, that might have been the highlight of the race because it, it, after that, they those guys kind of settled out. Yeah, it all started to get a bit strung out at the front, unfortunately. So looking a bit further down the grid, we had the almost now customary Johan Mir crash on the Honda, which brings the crashes, and we have to say this, it brings the crashes for just the Repsol, not Hondas in total, just the Repsol Honda, the factory team, up to 50 crashes this year. And considering that between them, both of these guys have missed nine Grand Prix due to injury, and they still have managed to crash 50 times, that just goes to show how tough this bike must be to ride. I mean, you've got you've got Mark Marquez, qualified 20th, I believe, sort of down it and binned it in the sprint race. You've got you've got Joanne Mir, who's the next world champion, really good, running around next to last and crashing still. Just what a dire, dire situation that we see there, Adam. Like, you know, it's it's depending if you like the riders or not, it's just never nice to see. We want to see these great champions fighting towards the front. I mean, we all need Honda to succeed. And I it's good for the sport, especially when we've got a Ducati winning every week. Um, Honda needs to be there. They need to step it up. They need to get their bike situated. And yeah, it's rough. Uh, you, I mean, Juwan Mir, he, he won the championship. He's a good rider. He knows, he knows how to win. He knows how to control a bike. He, you know, he, he knows how to manage tires. Cause that, that's what a lot of the racing is nowadays. But, and it, it's, it's sad to see. And it, it, it's a bit brutal. I'm glad he hasn't been seriously injured um, like a lot of the other Honda riders of recent time. Uh, but yeah, uh, they they need to get their bikes sorted. Yeah. So it's, it's a shame seeing that, um, but it did sort of um, distract us away from not a lot that was happening at the front. So <laughs> about 15 to go, uh, Bastianini and uh, Alex Marquez start to check out and the front group completely spread spreads out. There's about a second between them, but it's around this point where after the little salvos between Martin and Bagnaya, I kind of lose hope of it being a good race then because you see Martin drop back to about 0.8 of a second. Now, when I was watching this, I was like, right, this is intentional. He's just dropping off to try to preserve his front tyre pressure because of these front tyre pressure rules. But Jules, it seemed like it was a little bit more than that. I think he was struggling with the front a little bit, but it become apparent that he couldn't then close back in again. In hindsight, you could you could understand why why Martin was so almost desperate to get in front of, of the pack uh, at the start. He didn't, and then he got well not stuck uh, behind Bayaya, but maybe he did. He had he had that fierce battle, and at first I thought was he maybe running um, uh, higher tire pressures because he already had this warning, and was that hampering him um, to stay close to to Bayaya? Or did he maybe waste his tires uh, going into into that battle? But afterwards, he said it was not tire pressure, but it was actually tire temps that in that fight in the initial stage in left four or five, um, that he just heated his tires uh, that much and he couldn't get bring them back to life or not enough to to uh, keep Banyaya's pace. And then lap after lap, he just he saw the gap growing and growing. Yeah, there's not a lot there. We sort of lose hope it's clear that he doesn't have the pace to go forward. And I think it's quite frustrating. And Adam, I thought this was quite a good a good point here to prove maybe how far he's come on as a rider because we probably would expect Martin in the last couple of years to maybe get frustrated, over-push a bit here and bin it. 
Yeah, and so uh, he's pretty. I mean, he's pretty known for just pushing really hard, just getting those lap times and crashing. And I feel like this season, he's you, you've really seen the change in him as the way he's developed and being able to push, get those fast laps, but keep it on two wheels. And he, it, I, I saw an interview post race where he talks about having um, a lot of moments throughout the race. So I think. Um, he kind of held back on pace because he's trying to play it smart. He's in the, it, this is his chance. And so he doesn't want to crash and he noticed he was having moments. And so he just kind of held back a little bit and trying to maintain pace, manage, get some gaps. So Adam, do do you think that might be also uh, become a, a weak spot for him that he maybe starts thinking too much because After Thailand, uh, Martin uh, uh, told the media that, yeah, okay, I'm actually starting to feel the pressure now. I'm not sleeping that well. I couldn't really enjoy my sprint win in Thailand that much. So could it be that he's maybe overthinking this too much and it goes against his nature maybe? I definitely think so. I mean, you, you don't know how much these guys look at social media. You don't know how much they talk to the journalists behind the scenes because they get asked the same questions over and over. But if they were to look at social media right now or any kind of journalist website, they're going to see headlines about themselves. And that can easily spiral down this anxiety hole. And being in that position, I can't even imagine. Uh, it'd be really hard to do, and you, you really need to have the right people around him. Luckily, he does have, uh, I think his dad is one of his, um, like his primary assistant in the team. And he does have that support he needs, I'm sure. And... I it's definitely affecting him. Uh, I I fully agree with you. And also, we shouldn't forget that this is his first time going in, being in a real title battle. And of course, Peko Bayaya already has two two titles uh, on his name, so that that might be a bit unsettling for him as well. Yeah, yeah, could be. So I thought that was quite a mature ride. I don't like using the word mature because it kind of infers that they're immature, uh, which which they're not, but. You know what I mean? Uh, I think I think maybe a year or two ago he would have he, he probably would have overpushed and thrown it down the road. Um, and also after what he did in Mandalika, I think he's learned his lesson <laughs> that he doesn't want to chuck it away again. This could be his chance. So as it's spreading out the front, we've actually got a bit of meantime mid pack. There's a good little battle going on between Bez Miller, Quattararo, De Ginatonia, Binder, and Morbidelli. We can mention Frankie Morbidelli. We haven't we hardly ever get to mention him. That's twice in one show. Uh, and he's doing really well on the Yamaha, and this is all going extremely well. There's a few sort of fairings being exchanged. There's sort of it's not fighting too hard, but there's a few little, a bit of a scuffle going on in what otherwise was a bit of a Formula One esque race, Adam. So I was quite surprised we didn't see um, we didn't see sort of bears absolutely just pulling away from this group. But do you think he's su suffering with that collarbone still? Yeah, I definitely think he is. Um, I I mean, those guys are heroes being able to ride that kind of pace, ride these bikes at that track or, you know, in these tracks. But that track in particular is brutal on a normal day. You have some really hard braking and a lot of fast flowing corners where you really need a lot of your upper body, your core to be able to, to push these bikes through those corners. And I, I shattered my collarbone racing motocross a few years ago. And I, I remember thinking like, After about a week, I had surgery the day after the injury. But after about a week, I was like, I could probably ride a bike if I needed to. If I was paid a lot of money, I can probably do this. Would I want to do it? I don't know. Uh, that would be brutal. 
and especially for a 40 minute race anywhere. But Sepang is a track that really tests you for, I mean, the weather, the speed, the, the hard braking on your, your chest, it's gotta be, it's gotta be rough because there's not only one long straight, there's two and they're back to back. And yeah. So it, I definitely think he was struggling, but it was great to see uh, Fabio right in the mix. I think that he showed awesome pace in this race. It was good to see him uh, come from, uh, I think he start, qualified eighth, and he made it up to uh, about six in, in uh, turn one, turn two, and then just kind of kept pushing. And he stayed there, or not stayed there, but he, he kept the momentum up. And he was able to keep making positions, especially as some of the other riders started fail, fading back like Jack Miller. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice. So, so Fabio's always had great sort of late race pace. But the problem with the Yamaha is they struggle with straight line and acceleration and he just can't make the moves. And he has to put overload his front tire to get to that point. So he actually kept it all all together at this point and moved up. So that was really, really strong. Um, and unfortunately, that group was sort of hanging off the back of the group was, was well, well, kind of not really hanging off the back in the middle was sort of Brad Binder. And I've seen his interview after the race. Or Binder basically bins it. Um, and and sort of grenades to pack a little bit. I'm and this is about lap ten. I'm amazed he didn't bin it beforehand because apparently he had an engine braking issue that the engine braking wasn't really working and the bike was still pushing on into the corners. So he was having to put even more stress into his front tire. So the fact that he got to lap ten without throwing it down the road, I think, is quite an impressive achievement because, as as Adam just said, Malaysia is not a track where you want to be having a braking issue because it is really, really heavy on the brakes. I think all of the top three were mentioning that it was under braking where they were struggling with the front tyre and getting a lot of locking and movement. So that was really impressive by Binder. But unfortunately, down he went. And a couple of laps later, also Nakagami bins it. Now, I'm going to coin a phrase here, and I think that's the the HRC slump, which we're getting so used to seeing Honda and HRC riders head down dejected walking slowly back to pick up their bike when they've just tucked the front on and ride it back to the pits um yeah uh nakagami again honda there is not much more to say just just i'm so used to seeing a honda riders just dejected walking back to pick up their broken bike um it's it that said we said before it's really sad to see so there isn't much more going on at the front it all opens up it becomes abundantly clear that the the front order isn't going to change much i was still hanging on to hope that marquez was still going to put a move on to bastianini and then put bastianini into a, an awkward sort of place where he might have to consider letting bagnaya back through uh, it's quite clear that jorge martin cannot fight bagnaya and has settled for fourth so it's a bit of a follow leader home finish to a, an f1 style motor gp race unfortunately so um yeah sort of adam like Obviously, as a long-term fan, this isn't great to see, but it does happen at times. You have to take the rough of the smooth. Yeah, I kind of got flashbacks from the CRT days and the days of Stoner and Lorenzo, where they would just, you know, get a good start and just take off. There wouldn't there'd be two overtakes for the race, and they were for twelfth and thirteenth place. And um, this it it wasn't to that level, uh, but it I I did have some flashbacks because I saw the race live. Uh, and it, you know, it was a bit of a struggle to, to stay up for it because it was at about 1am time for me. And, um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was a bit of a, especially we're a bit spoiled. Uh, the last couple of years have been really solid competitive races and there hasn't been this much of a procession in a while. And so there are slumps, 
and I, I feel like it, it, I'm a bit optimistic and I say it could be worse. Yes, it could be Formula One. <laughs> where this is the news but, but i also personally love that as well so we'll pretty much wrap up this race review so bastianini comes home and takes a brilliant win we have to see i don't think is anybody in the paddock barring maybe jorge martin who was disappointed to see that um that was really good he comes home from again alex marquez another brilliant podium in second and peco bagnaya which you can't have to say a, a really good champion's ride to third place to to manage to get that that championship lead, which had started at 13, whittled down to 11, back up to 14 again. Back up to 14 again by the end. So the ball is still in his court. Really good to see Bastianini come back, but there wasn't that many really headlines out of this race. So there were some headlines after the race, though. So quick few little wrap-up points. As I said, the championship's back up to 14 points and it is now down to a two-horse race. Bezeki is now mathematically out of it. It is just down to Martin and Peko Bagnaya. But after the race, Jules, Bagnaya gets his low tyre pressure warning as well as Bastianini. So both of the factory Ducati riders get their warning and that puts them in exactly the same position as Martin does. So they're going into Qatar on a level playing field, which is quite interesting because Bagnaya actually said before that he was going to use this as a bit of a joker card. I, I think he was intentionally going to run under pressure at Qatar. Um, but he can't now. So what do we think about that? Indeed. In, b- before the Grand Prix weekend, um, he was quoted saying, uh, indeed, it was Joker card, and he, he actually allocated the Qatar Grand Prix to purposely uh, ride uh, underneath that minimum tire pressure. So this is a bit of a, of a, of a spoil uh, uh, for him. And it also... Uh, ignited a lot of talk about uh, this tire pressure rule with quite a few riders, um, you know, really uh, exposing their their uh, displeasure with this with this rule, and it would be really really unwelcome if this rule would actually uh, decide the championship in one in one or two weeks because a three second time penalty for either of of the of the title contenders is on the cards now and it 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 would be i, I think uh, something you you wouldn't want uh, to uh, to decide a title if you were uh, yeah. absolutely so with Bagnaya and Martin both in the same position Adam who else do you reckon's looking quick at Qatar I think it might be KTM's chance to get a win I I I think that this the track can really suit them KTM's look fantastic in mid mid corner speed. They it's like you mentioned the engine braking earlier. It's almost like they're on the throttle while everybody everybody else is on the brake. It it almost doesn't make sense sometimes how much they can really push mid corner. And I think a, a a track like Qatar can really highlight that. And the straight is long, but it's got a long sweeper going right into it. Where I think they can put up a fight if they could get a good start. I think that Brad Bender can really get a good chance. Uh, to get a win and I think that if um, during the sprint if Jack Miller gets a good start I think that he can also be in contention for a win um, he, he he's a bit known to to kill his tires and I think his better chance would be in the sprint than the Grand Prix so w- we'll see but I, I think KTM has a really good chance to ha- get a result um, next week in Qatar yeah hopefully uh, also I think you know the last two years 
Martin has been absolutely rapid at Qatar. So I think this is why Bagnaia wanted to use that as his joker card for his for his low tire pressure warning to try to sort of stave off the well, the surely like ominous and and definitely going to happen pace from Martin. I think there's a few people questioning whether it will be the same case this year, but I'm very much expecting Martin to be almost untouchable on pace throughout the weekend. So that's really interesting. Um it's a great track Qatar. I'm mean, used to seeing it at the start of the schedule, really. It's a bit odd seeing it at the end of the schedule, even though I think it's 2005 when we went there for the first time. It used to be at the end of the schedule. So it's kind of gone back to its roots, shall we say. But um, looking backwards, Moto2, Jules, we've had a new Moto2 world champion over the weekend. Yes, indeed, Carl, we did. Uh, it was actually Pedro Acosta who secured uh, the Moto2 title. Uh, he came in second behind his his, his, his title rival uh, Fermin Aldeguer, and um, yeah, he's he's the the, the next best thing coming uh, uh, with a lot of hype around him, and he's still still very young, but now already in both uh, of the Moto Three and Moto Two uh, classes, he's got the world title, and next year we'll uh, we'll welcome him uh, in the Moto GP if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, so he's coming up with KTM. That is going to be really, really, really interesting. Um, the new Marquez, in my opinion. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So like with these race reviews, we'd like to wrap up with your rider of the race. So my rider of the race was Bastianini coming back to form. How could I give it to anybody else? Who's yours, Adam? I got Fabio. Uh, he he killed it this weekend. Uh, he got he, he did a pretty solid result in the, in the sprint and his... Full Grand Prix, I mean, it, he was on it, and it was good to see him back. It was good to see Yamaha back. I'm giving it to Alex Marquez. I think he did a great yeah. job on uh, on Friday being fastest. Uh, during the sprint, he was the only one who kept all of his laps up to uh, two minutes, and that on on a, on a year-old Ducati, it's, uh, it's pretty impressive, I thought. Yep, mega. And so we'll finish on moment of the race. Mine was Bastianini's perfect turn one, open sesame, with it all going wide, and he gets in and takes the whole shot and doesn't look back. What's yours, Jules? I'm going for Pecco not having any of Martin uh, on lap four and five. So mine wasn't really technically in the race, but it was uh, Pecco in the cooldown room watching the replay of him send it around the outside of Martin and just laughing. I thought that that was great. It, yeah, it was just funny to see. Well, thank you for joining me both. That was the race review of the Malaysian Grand Prix. We'll be back next week for the Qatar GP review, ready for your Tuesday morning commute. So you can follow our panel. You can follow Adam Rosales by finding him on the Grand Prix Travel subreddit and find the username AdamR46. And you can also follow Jules by Jules at Jules Seegers over at Twitter. Thank you very much for listening to Missed Apex MotoGP podcast. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, keep loving your racing.